Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A jewel in the desert. A round city full of merchants, rulers, and scholars. The great minds of the Abbasid Empire. This is Figures of Baghdad. Hello, fellow travelers. Welcome to Figures of Baghdad. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. So, Ali, who shall we visit today? Who do you want to hang out with? We visited the engineering nerds and the math dorks. <laughs> you know, it's time for the doctors. When we chatted last, we talked about the major sciences of this time period. So I want to hear about them. Astronomy, mathematics, philosophy and medicine. And with all these sciences, they were related to each other in some way. We can see that in the form of Hunyan ibn Ishaq. We met him briefly last season where he was in charge of the House of Wisdom and one of the lead translators. That's our guy. He was an historian Christian who lived from 808 to 873. Which again really stresses that we are looking at cultures sharing with one another, Jewish and Christian scientists working alongside Muslim ones. Now, what does the job of the head of the House of Wisdom involve, Ali? Ibn Ashok basically had about four responsibilities. He needed to collect new texts. He would then translate texts. He also directed the research and translation projects of the entire House of Wisdom. And then either he or his agents would educate the students. And I really have to say this again. The House of Wisdom really is so much more than a library. It's a learning center. It doesn't just house the world's knowledge, but they're also expanding it in different ways. We talked about how Al-Mahani was commenting on Euclid. This is true of Ibn Ashok too. He was commenting and expanding the knowledge he was encountering. His origins, though, are actually quite humble. He's originally a Syriac and an Arabic native speaker. That probably helped with the translations. Most of these scholars were multilingual, but it was in languages they were native speakers in. What were some of the common languages scholars at this time spoke, Atli? You know, Dina, we believe that most of them were at minimum trilingual. I mean, that kind of blows your mind considering that some of us struggle being bilingual or even monolingual. But the most common languages here were Arabic, Greek, Syriac and Persian. And they were each specialists in their own languages. Did Ibn Ishaq work mostly in Syriac and Arabic? Greek too, actually. His wow. origins are really interesting here. His father was a pharmacist, so that probably indicates why he had such a deep interest in medicine. Ah, so that is the start of his medical journey. I've noticed that frequently there is a family connection for the scholars. They either learn from their fathers or they develop an interest early. Nowadays, we don't really pick a major until university. Or as you'd say, Ali, college. <laughs> what was your major? I know we talked about engineering, but what did you want to be? 
I majored in economics. I actually wanted to be the first female president of Egypt. Ooh. Obviously, not going well. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I was really interested in politics, but I was always a history major all through college. Oh, I found politics quite frustrating as a subject. That's exactly why I majored in economics. Mm, makes sense. But if you think about it, our system is very different from what we see in medieval Baghdad. While the House of Wisdom is a learning institution, and there were certainly classes, we're really looking at more of an apprentice-style structure. So it's more like a one-to-one -one tuition, learning from an expert or master who then passes their knowledge on to you. And it wasn't always one-on-one, -on -one, we should be clear. I mean, it could be a class or group setting, but it was always focused on the individual teacher rather than the subject. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of our graduate school education today is based off of this structure. You pick an advisor and then they guide you through until you get your master's or your doctorate. For Ibn Ishaq, this was Ibn Masawi. And through one-to-one -one instruction, you get a really high-quality education. Mm -hmm. Having the attention of a teacher and their focus on not just the education, but your learning style is incredible. You can see a passing down of knowledge from teacher to student in so many of the people we have discussed before. True enough, but that didn't quite work as well with Ibn Masawi. Ibn Ashok was a bit of an annoying student. Apparently, he kept asking question after question after question until his teacher, Ibn Masawi, kicked him out of class. He was that student. But thinking about that, as a lecturer, as a professor, would you not love it when students ask you questions? I love students like that. Do you think it was maybe an ego thing? Maybe. <laughs> I can kind of see you asking a lot of questions, Ali, as a student. Nah, I was too rebellious. You? Okay, warrior nerd. <laughs> But obviously Ibn Isha was brilliant regardless of how things went down with Ibn Masawi. He goes from humble but annoying student to the head of the house of wisdom. And that's quite a climb. In fact, they actually reconcile at some point. Ibn Ishaq goes away to master more languages, specifically Greek, so that he can get a strong grasp over medicine. And he comes back to Baghdad where he meets his old teacher and he shows off by reciting the complete works of Homer in Greek. Oh, that must have felt so good. Oh, yeah. To be able to come back and show up your teacher is definitely something I would have loved to do. <laughs> I can see why he goes on to become the head of the entire House of Wisdom project. He worked so hard to get to where he did. Yeah, and under him, the House of Wisdom really flourishes. His translations were numerous. He translated more texts than absolutely anyone, adding new contributions to the field. He actually had a very interesting approach to translation. He was the expert in Greek and Syriac, so he would translate from Greek into the Syriac, and then he would have his son and his nephew translate from the Syriac into the Arabic. That's probably why he was so prolific. He had a conveyor belt-like technique. I love that he collaborated in that way. You know, each book is a product of not just one person, but many people working on it together. A true community of scholars all working in partnership. But of course, his greatest works were in the field of medicine. That is what he's known for after all. In addition to being the head of the House of Wisdom, he was the personal physician to many caliphs. Yeah, he advised Al-Ma'mun, but from Al-Mutawakil on, he would be the court physician, the chief physician, in addition to being the head of the House of Wisdom. Though, I don't know what it says about him that he outlived so many of his patients. Or maybe he actually took his own advice. Maybe those patients didn't listen. 
I mean, he did have a pretty long life. And he accomplished a lot in his time. He definitely did, but it was also a very, very cushy job. I mean, you had to keep the favor of the khalif, but if you managed to do so, it was a good way to live. The Banu Musa, who were students, eventually become very wealthy, and they added on top of what the khalif did, which is why he's so interesting, because it tells us the ordinary life of a scholar. So what was a normal day like for him? We have a biographer who talks a little bit about Ibn Ashok's day, so I'm going to quote. After writing, he would have water poured on him. He would lie down until he stopped perspiring. Sometimes he would fall asleep. Then he would get up and burn perfumes to fumigate his body and have dinner brought in. That sounds like a nice life. Go for a nice ride, bathe, nap. But despite all of that, he's still got a lot done, which is something I couldn't even imagine trying to do. (laughs) Yeah, he really did. Just his theories of medicine alone were incredibly important. He translated the most definitive work of Galen's, which laid the foundation of medicine. So he's the founder of a new school of medicine, well, an Islamic science of medicine. Yeah, it's called Tibunani. It's a fusion of Greek, Arabic, Indic, and Syriac medical techniques. Drawing upon Galen's and Hippocrates, it actually theorizes that everyone is made up of four different humors. And maybe we can take a look and see which humor you are, Dina, and which humor I am. So the four are hot and dry, cold and wet, hot and wet, and cold and dry. So hot and dry is someone who is inflexible but passionate, and they are sort of aggressive, impulsive. Cold and wet is a person who is adaptable but reserved. Hot and wet is a person who is adaptable but social. And cold and dry is a person who is inflexible but reserved. Which one are you, Ali? I think I'm cold and dry. I'm very reserved, but I'm very set in my ways. I'm hot and wet, definitely. I'm very adaptable. I'm very social. So you've got that social component. Yeah, I have a lot of hot and dry friends, though. I don't know if you can relate. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) I can definitely relate. And this entire scheme was the key to health because it was the balance of the humors, the harmony between mind, body and spirit. So tell me a bit about the techniques they use for maintaining that balance in their health. So they had a few different techniques. First was dietary and nutrition, changing the way you ate and what you ate. They had medicinal compounds that they would take. They even had cupping and body manipulation. Ah, like in the hammam. Yeah, and then they also had surgery and bloodletting. Surgery sounds very dangerous. Even today, there's always a risk of infection and recovery can be a real challenge. They do mention that surgery was the most dangerous approach, and so they were very sparing when they were doing it and very careful in applying it. But they also developed some really new antiseptic techniques which they could use in some of those surgeries. Having said that, Ali, we do hear a lot of horror stories about amputations. I mean, mostly they did things like C-sections and eye surgery for cataracts. But there's actually a funny story about an amputation that I got to tell you. Okay. So there's this guy named Usama ibn Munkith who's living during the Crusades. And he's in Jerusalem. And he comes across a man who has an abscess on his leg. And he and a crusader doctor try to treat this man. Usama ibn Munkith, being an expert in Islamic medicine, he applies a poultice, an herbal mixture wrapped up in a bandage and places it on the abscess and says, we will cleanse it, purify it, and it will go away. The crusader doctor, on the other hand, goes, nope, you've got to lose the leg. You have a choice. Die with two legs or live with one leg. So he calls for an axe and... There goes the man's leg. Usaba ibn Munkif is so shocked by this that he says, never again will I treat these barbarians. But if I'm being honest with you, I think Usama ibn Munkif was exaggerating a tad. Oh, so he likes to brag. 
Yeah, a little bit. Okay, let's get back to the eye surgery because that really stood out and blows my mind. Surgery on the eye back then. Yeah, this is Ibn Ishaq's specialty. His contributions to eye medicine were incredible. His diagrams, in fact, were so advanced that they became the standard for the next 900 years. I really want to know more about some of the other treatments. Can you give me some recipes from Islamic medicine? For example, if I have a headache, what should I do? All right, so I'm going to read some of his formulas. If you have a headache, particularly a headache from heat, what you're supposed to do is get a towel with cool water. You're supposed to put camphor oil on it or fumigate it with camphor and place it upon your head as a compress until the headache goes away. Okay, what if I had tummy problems or like a common cold? All right, here he says, take one teaspoon or one part violet flowers and boil them in three cups of water for several minutes, then strain them and take it on an empty stomach. So not a cold and flu tablet then? No, but... (laughs) We're getting complex and simple medicine techniques here. Very interesting. Totally. Really intriguing stuff. And we're really seeing a turning point in knowledge and science in this time period. And Ibn Esha's influence is all over it. This humble Christian man who learned Greek and became a translator and physician would transform the world of medicine and learning. And we still have so many more cool people to visit. Thank you for coming along. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. This is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast so you don't miss the next episode of Figures of Baghdad. See you next time, fellow travelers. Bye.